Today I will be reading from sections of Mark 14, verse 12, and then later to 17, 28. Follow along on the screen or in your Bible if you have one. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not, yet, if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning. It's great to be with you. I will be in our passage here in the Gospel of Mark in our series, The Story and Way of Jesus. Um, the Gospel of Mark is the most narrative gospel account in our New Testament. It's the most narratival, whatever the right word is for this, the, the most narrative-ish uh, account of Jesus' life. There's fewer teachings. It is a pretty concise, quick run on who Jesus is, what he came to do, and a few things about what he said, but the people he spent time around. And today's um, section recalls the history of Israel in the um, the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover meal. And so Jesus is at this dinner with friends referencing an old story, pulling together these different threads and the hopes of the nation of Israel over these centuries. And he's presiding over this meal and drawing some of those narrative threads together. And since 2020, I think the word narrative has sort of been in the zeitgeist of our culture because if you've ever heard someone say, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Um, or if you've ever heard someone just squabbling over socio-political issues, or I'm thinking of 2020 around like the science and those sorts of things, it's evident that um, our world is more polarized than ever because we all hold these subjective narratives, these like individually chosen stories that we find our lives in. And so our interpretation of the facts and of our lives and of our meaning in our lives is largely dictated not by just data that we're always crunching as if we're just, um, you know, computers on a, uh, uh, you know, in flesh. It's, it's the story that you find yourself in. One of the greatest objections to Christianity um, in a place like San Francisco is not so much that the facts of it are incomprehensible, but that we live our normal lives in a narrative that is, is uh, not always in line with the narrative of scripture, or the narrative that Jesus is accessing when he talks about the history of humanity, redemptive history, or, or whatever you call it. 
One of the greatest objections to Christianity in a place like San Francisco is not an argument about facts, but just this noise. You know, it's not an argument to be made. It's just like, I don't live my life in a story where these things matter, and so they just pass right by me, and they're, they're uninteresting to me. They don't have value. They don't have, they're not savvy. They're not what the people groups I want to be a part of care about. And so it all just sort of like coalesces in, if you've ever told someone you go to church, like a general blank stare of, holy crap, I'm awkward. Uh, this is an awkward situation. What else do I say to a person who's just talking about church? Okay. So we find ourselves in a narrative. I uh, was reminded this week because it's the farewell tour of the Grateful Dead and John Mayer, so the band together. Anybody else go to that concert this weekend? Oh, you guys are cool. Okay, so John Mayer basically plays with the Grateful Dead, and they call that band Dead and Company. And I was invited to one of the first shows. Uh, actually, my, my wife bought me tickets to one of the first shows of Dead and Company. I think it was in at the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, my wife... I opened up the present for my birthday, and my wife says, um, I got you John Mayer tickets. And I was like, I love John Mayer. This is awesome. And so we go all the way through this process of, like, getting excited for the event and going, and it says, John Mayer and the Grateful Dead. And I'm thinking, okay, who's opening for who here? Because I'm sure there's some boomers that are like, the, the headliner should be the Grateful Dead. And I'm thinking, like, of course it needs to be John Mayer and whatever cool Hollywood friends he invites on stage with him. So we get to the concert the day of, and it's evident that there are two demographics of people at Dead and Company. There are the old hippies who made it in life and stayed in LA, and then there are the millennials who are like, I'm here for John, okay. And on the bench where we're sitting, it is just like divided in half, and we were in the middle. On my right were all of the boomer white hippies who were like, this is my moment. And then to the left, all the millennials, young people who are just sitting there, and then you get, I don't know if you know anything about the Grateful Dead. Some of you love the Grateful Dead, and so I will not say anything negative about them, but the songs go on for at least an hour each, right? That's just, like, you're just sitting there, you're going like, like, what is, the, where's the song headed? And I, I knew nothing about the Grateful Dead. I, I knew nothing, I didn't know a single song about the Grateful Dead. I'm just sitting there going, and like an hour into the opening band, which was the Grateful Dead, An hour in, I'm like, okay, all right, I think I get this. Like, I'm sober as heck, and I'm too cheap to even buy beer at a concert venue, and so I don't think this music was, like, meant for, like, a stone-cold sober person, but, like, I'm enjoying it. I'm having a great evening with my wife. And then about an hour and 20 minutes in, the millennials to my left sort of start squirming, like, man, this is a long opening set. And then one of them leans to me and goes, like, what is going on here? And what you find out is that Dead and Company is not the Grateful Dead, then you get to see John Mayer. Dead and Company is John Mayer plays backup guitar for the Grateful Dead for six and a half hours. <laughs> At some point, I think two and a half hours in, all the millennials were like, oh, all right, let's get a coffee. You know, and like you just sort of see them walking out and then like that was my moment to like tap my wife on the shoulder and say, let's just go to dinner. So we all walk out. No hate on the Grateful Dead. I'm sure you all love them or something. You know, they're just wonderful, historic band. Uh, great, and their final shows are happening this weekend. It was a, a case of mistaken narrative because my wife went on John Mayer's website and bought tickets to see John Mayer. We, we, we missed the facts of it because we missed the narrative of it. And you, you might live your life with us. So that was a stupid example, but there's a larger important point here. <clears throat> You live in a, maybe a socio-political narrative where you say, I, as a person, find meaning in my life because I advocate for um, the rights of people who those rights would be destroyed 
if the wrong ideas got out. You might live your life with a family narrative that says, I have to honor my parents and their work to help me uh, make it up in life. You might live a very individualistic narrative that can sometimes be very freeing, but might also be um, very lonely where you say, I'm, I'm at it on my own and I have to make the meaning and the story for myself. Whatever it is, we live in these narratives and Jesus in this moment, whether you are steeped in this biblical narrative that Jesus is accessing with his, with his Jewish friends or whether you are not sure where you stand with God or even Christianity at all, he's drawing together all the narrative threads of human history and of the people of Israel and all of those threads, he's grabbing all of them and he's saying all of them find resolution in me. And he's trying to drive that home, that point home, right as he enters in to the final days of his earthly ministry at his betrayal, at his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And instead of just going through the facts of this passage, I want us to walk through relatively quickly through just the this sort of just phenomenon where no matter what you believe about God, a lot of us have the same highlights to our narrative. We're all looking for important things, uh, whether you know God or claim to know God or not, like things like deliverance from enslavement or redemption in the face of evil or justice and love and that dichotomy around how to live your life in a world that is uh, just in light of injustice and yet uh, wanting to be a person of grace and love or a transformative power that can change you. So instead of walking through the facts of the passage, I'd like for us to just talk about these biblical themes that find resolution in Jesus. First, deliverance and redemption, the Passover. Secondly, justice and love, the lamb. And third, a transformative power, how it's made its way into the Christian tradition of what's called the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, the bread and the cup that we celebrate every Sunday at church. First, deliverance and redemption. If you look in verse 12, the, the concept, the umbrella sort of narrative around our passage today is in verse 12 here that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? You see, the Passover was an annual event in Jerusalem commemorating the defining moment in the history of Israel. God's covenant people in the Old Testament were in Exodus, enslaved in Egypt, in bondage, and God delivered them into freedom. The Passover commemorates this moment of deliverance. And many of the prophets, if you just read quickly through the Bible, you would find that many of the prophets, much of the New Testament, all these different parts of the Bible point back to this event of God freeing his people from enslavement. And so the Passover meal that Jesus and his friends are at uh, had th this form. There were four cups of wine. I know it's a lot, but there were four cups of wine uh, and four moments in the ceremony where, um, where we find ourselves in the pivotal part of the passage is the third cup. And after the third cup that Jesus is talking about, there's another cup, uh, and at which point you would sing a hymn which is why in verse 26 it says that they had sung him and they went out to the Mount of Olives. But by uh, verse 22, the meal is almost done. Pardon me. By verse 22, the meal is almost done and the host would now explain if you were presiding over the meal that this cup symbolizes what's said in Deuteronomy 16, the, the cup of the bread of our affliction. Deuteronomy 16, three says, for seven days eat unleavened, unleavened bread the bread of affliction, 
because you left Egypt in haste so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So he's accessing this narrative thread. Remember when we were enslaved. Remember how some of us had what we now call Stockholm Syndrome, where you live so much of your life in bondage at the power of someone else. So much of your life is held by the, the whims and the desires of some other thing or some other person that we just got used to living in, as slaves. But then God disrupted all of that narrative and freed us in his power and in his love for, uh, for our people. So you can imagine the astonishment of Jesus accessing that narrative thread Grabbing it and saying in verse 22, he said he took the bread. While he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. What's he saying here? This is my body, holding the bread, showing them. He's saying the, the bread of our affliction, of our enslavement, that true deliverance and true freedom that we celebrate every year with our families tangibly, historically, ritualistically, this is my body broken for you. And he's referencing for the rest of the book of the, of, of the gospel of Mark and then bookended in our passage here, is a, it's about Jesus' betrayal, verses 17 through 21 and then even 27 and 28. Jesus is saying, I'm about to be betrayed and my body is about to be broken and that body being broken is the bread of the affliction that brings our freedom. So <clears throat> our hopes and our dreams, all of our stories, no matter what we believe about God, sort of have something compelling here, such that as a pastor, when I talk to different people um, who aren't sure if they're a Christian or aren't sure if they still wanna be a Christian, the dilemma is this for many people. I see something compelling and powerful and beautiful about the promises of Jesus, and yet my baggage with this issue is fill in the blank. It's almost like we, we, we see in our heart of hearts that our stories long for a deliverance, a true deliverance, a freedom that's a, a true, capital F, freedom, like the kind of freedom that our hearts dream of and, and would give us hope to like sustain through painful challenges in life, and yet then whatever you put in the second half of that statement, but do I have to give up this? Do I have to change that? Do I have to become sort of like an evangelical? Do I have to be like, do I have to become that kind of Christian? Whatever your baggage is with this thing, so often, again, people who are not sure if they're a Christian, people who are not sure if they still wanna live as a Christian, we still have this nagging Christ-haunted feeling to say, if it's true, it would be the deliverance to end all deliverances. If the baggage could be torn away, it would be a freedom to end all, to, to supersede all other freedoms. And that's the claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, you know the bread of our affliction and God's power to save us, and all of that is in me. That's quite a promise, and of course the question for us now is, but how? And I think instead of just dwelling on it, we should move on to our next theme to show us. And that's the themes of love and justice. Remember, Jesus, in choosing this particular moment, the third cup in the Passover meal on the days before he was about to die, is explaining the meaning of his impending death, love and justice. And this is the Passover meal. In Exodus, the Pharaoh of Egypt was perpetrating great injustice, authoritarianism, and slavery of an entire people group. And the unfolding narrative of the Bible does show us that God is a God of justice. 
He's not a passive God. And so God brings down justice and judgment on human evil in Exodus 11 through 13. One commentator noted that it's as if um, as this judgment comes down in the, in the Exodus, in the, the Passover, the thing that is commemorated by the Passover, it's as if we're getting a preview of like the final righteous justice that God would enact. And it's just a small preview of it in that effort to free God's people. And so the question is, who does the judgment fall down on? Now, you'll notice if you read in Exodus that some of the plagues were sort of directed, the, the plagues in Exodus were directed towards Egypt. And yet when the justice comes down in Exodus, it falls on everyone. Like that justice and judgment comes by everyone's home. And so what this is telling us in part is that the world is not quite divided by good people and bad people like we typically think. Like first and foremost, who, who's judged by God? Who, who faces the justice of a, of a big, holy, righteous God? Well, first and foremost, we know that um, from this, that it, it doesn't just fall on the people we would label as good and bad. And this is the ironic thing because um, how the, the people that you would label in society as the ones who might be in store for a little bit of judgment and the people who deserve grace and mercy and, and love, like how we draw that line says way more about us and what we think about ourselves than other people. And we conveniently tend to draw the line sort of like, like just around us, you know? Like we're, we're always on the side of the forgiven. We're like, well, yeah, I have my baggage, I have my problems, I contribute to injustice in some small ways or big ways, um, but after all, you don't understand the father I had, you know, or you don't understand the life I've had, or you don't understand that I'm not, I'm not as evil as the people who have greater wealth than me or who have different political ideologies than me, who have different cultural norms than me. We tend to draw ourselves on the side of the forgiven. And yet, God's justice in the Exodus is, is completely egalitarian. It's like oddly, oddly even-handed. What that means here is that well, it's important to note at least that God does give them a very peculiar way out of the justice. See, what happens is on the night of the Passover, you are to take a lamb to evade justice and you eat it that night and then you take the blood from the lamb and you put it on the doorpost of your house and when justice comes by, those who take shelter under the blood of the lamb will be saved. And so if all of us take part in injustice, all of us, God's egalitarian justice is saying, all of us take part in the injustices that make the world a bit more broken. And yet you can, uh, you can if you take shelter under the blood of this lamb, then you can find a way out. Of course, the question then is why, how is it that a woolly lamb, like a cute little lamb, how does that appease God's anger at injustice? Egypt or us? Like how would a woolly, like speaking of betrayal, you know? Like Jesus is about to be betrayed and the relationship that you have with a woolly little lamb, like do you have expectations for the moral, moral decisions of a lamb? No, of course not. And they're just cute. And then every other time you grab their neck, you're scratching their neck and they probably just really enjoy it. Except for the one time where you're grabbing their neck and they're like, wait, this one feels different. And then they're just dead. Now, if you're, 
upset, sorry, it's too vivid. If you're upset, I'm making a point here. If you're upset at what I just said, but you eat meat, then please understand that there is this weird thing when we read the Old Testament, but still go to Costco and buy a pack of chicken, where we just think meat comes in the grocery store because we don't live in the ancient world and we don't think that it actually takes a sacrifice to feed us. Now for you vegans, I just wanna honor you right now, okay? (laughs) Try to be a vegan in the first century, you'll get extra points, okay? People ate meat in the sacrifice. That's not, I think, I think because we don't slaughter animals. Our main hangup is like, how could you kill a woolly lamb? First of all, we're living in a subsistence world in the ancient world, but it's not as if the lamb was just killed just for some sort of religious exercise. Of course, we're eating the meat. And the, the function of the sacrifice is that it's costly because meat was a rare thing. It's a thing that would get your whole village by in a pinch. Uh, uh, taking a, a one lamb would be a percentage of your entire wealth or your family's wealth. So the, the, the hang-up that we might have around how cute lambs are, like that's the point. It's supposed to be asking the question, what did that lamb ever do? And then how would God's justice ever be actually appeased by the lamb? And I want, to, I want you to know that Jesus, John the Baptist, and Isaiah all know that those cute little animals don't actually appease God's justice at all. But they are a narrative thread that points you to the one who can So John, when John sees Jesus for the first time, his response to Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Isaiah, before the time of Jesus, is is writing about a suffering servant who would serve God. And this is what he says about this ultimate servant that would would honor God. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is the point I'm trying to make. that We're narratively removed from the sacrificial system and yet it's important to know that that sacrificial system created, if you will, a worldview that holds two things that we have tension with in our world and the Bible holds the tension. How is there justice in the world and necessary love, grace, and mercy. Like our legal system has that problem. How we treat our neighbors is sort of like penetrated with that problem. And so we're asking the question, how how can we hold both of those things? The need for rightness and the need for mercy. Let's hang on to that tension for just a second. Either way, Jesus is affirming when he stands with the bread about the affliction He's saying, and, and, and holds the cup, drinks from the third cup. He's saying, you can be saved by my substitutionary sacrificial love. My blood is the ultimate blood under which you can hide and find shelter from justice. And I, I feel like if I spend 20 more minutes on this point, it will be too much. But can I have three? Okay. Three uh, minutes to make an impossibly difficult case for the fact that God's justice might be a, a better thing than we give it credit for in uh, our time and culture. Because you might ask the question, why does God need justice? Why, why does God have to be just? Why can't he just love us? Why can't he just be kind to everyone? 
uh, I have three metaphors. One metaphor, parenting. Okay, so I'm a parent of young children. You'll hear it in every single sermon because it's sort of like this all-encompassing thing. And um, when I was a kid, I remember telling my dad, you don't really love me. I was angry at him about something. He said, you don't really love me. How could a loving person ever ground their child, you know? And then my dad would say, no, I love you. Of course I love you. And I would say, no, I remember saying this. You have to love me. That's your job. Because, like, that's what dads do, right? And, and we do that with God. We say it's God's job to love. He's, like, graceful and merciful. And, like, isn't that just his thing to forgive me? But that's a cheap love if you don't understand the sacrifice. Like, like it's a cheap Temporary, you can't bank on it. it. It means nothing. It's not historical. There's not a journey that led to the love. It means nothing if it's just that's what you do. But chiefly, it means nothing because there's not a sacrifice. And I know as a dad of two that the moment my kid tells me I don't love him, I'm going to tell him a story about the time he was potty training. And then he hides in the closet. And I'm going, I know what's going on in that closet. And I open up the closet door and he's going to the bathroom, but in a place that he's not supposed to. But then he sees me when the door is open and then he sprints away from the closet. The stuff that was coming out was going all over the floor. I'm chasing him, of course, he's like the slipperiest little devil and he's too fast. And I grab him by the arm and I'm like, um, there's stuff just, you know, you're chasing him, like trying to not hit the landmines, you know. <laughs> and then I finally grab him. I literally pick him up by a single arm. I put him in the tub. I turn the tub on high. I'm washing him all up because he's not, you know, he doesn't know how to do all this stuff. Of course, then he's like splashing the water on me. And I'm like, I've never been so filthy in my entire life. Splashing the water on me. And then uh, as soon as I finally get him cleaned up, I realize that there's still a bunch of stuff on the floor in the rest of the house. And I haven't told anyone else. I walk outside of the door. The dog is like eating all the parts. <laughs> You guys, you're never going to forget this sermon. Okay, so he's like, the dog's eating. I'm like, no, the dog, get the dog out, cleaning up the floor. My son's running around getting water all over the place. And it's like, the sacrifice. I'm, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Even if I slept eight hours but got pooped on, I would be fine. But don't not sleep. Okay, it's the sacrifice. The love means sacrifice. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say. The love, if it, if it doesn't, ha what did it cost you to love? And it's meaningful. And if God is right, and he's holding the tension of like a just God who's not passive and evil, then it also stands to reason that it could be positive, that he cares and is just. Mirzlaf Wolf is one of my favorite authors on the subject, and I've quoted him before. And um, he wrote a book called Free of Charge, and I'll just read the quote to you to sort of finalize the point. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful, at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. 
God is wrathful because God is love. I heard one time that the greatest form of hate is not anger, it's indifference. And that God is holding these tensions, but they find resolution on the cross. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm about to be betrayed to my death and rise from the dead, and you guys are gonna scatter like scared sheep. And God is so loving. He's so loving that he chose a substitute so that we could be passed over, so that the wrath could pass over us, which is why we have the Passover festival. But he's so just and, and caring and involved in the world that he does get angry at injustice, does something about it to free us as well. Real love, all real love, is that kind of involved, substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice meaning I take on the burden so that, and sacrifice something for you to show you an act of love. And all real love is that kind of love. Like all life-changing love is substitutionary and sacrificial. If you love someone but it doesn't cost you anything, then it's just a virtue signal. It's just a, a, a positive thought. It's just a thought. But, and if it's sacrificial, but it's not for you, then it doesn't matter if I'm just like out here suffering, but not doing something for you that you need, and then it's just me seeking to be a martyr. Real love is substitutionary, meaning I step in your place, I take on a burden for you. Think about it in your own life. Every good gift you've ever been given was sacrificial enough to matter, and it was substitutionary because they took the time to give you something powerful. Every act of love for a person who's in need, like love someone who actually has emotional needs, it's not just that you interact with them. You have to get down on their level to get in on their level to think about the things they think about. That's substitutionary. You have to take on the emotional burdens of other people to, to stoop down, if you will, to pull them out of it. It always costs you something. Real love is substitutionary and sacrificial. Every the climax of every movie where you cry. Like the movies are the same equation. It's the narrative lines of your life replayed with different characters. Some of them are like transformers. It doesn't even matter what the characters are, you know what I mean? But like somebody steps in and takes on the burden, takes on the risk, takes on the hate, takes on the violence that would otherwise kill people that they care about. That's the plot of every movie that's ever mattered to you. I'm thinking here of the end of the, <clears throat> the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan, this kingly lion figure, takes on death for other people, and the witch uh, destroys Aslan, but in so doing, the world is saved. And here's the quote from the end of the story. If the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. That's the love that all of our hearts long for. A kind of sacrificial love that can turn back hurt and trauma. And that's what Jesus is saying when he's holding the bread and he's holding the cup. He's saying it's the true deliverance and it's the true bloodshed and the sacrificial love that can turn back death. Let's close with this sort of third point around um, the other thing that we long for, which is transforming power. Like let's say you do live in a narrative where you feel like your life is so valuable that God himself stooped down and substitutionally pulled you up, took on a burden, 
died in your stead on the cross, let's say you live with that narrative, what drives it home to actually change the way you think about your life? And here I'm thinking about the act of communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup that we take every Sunday. Because it's God's intent for us to have a a ritual and a community and tangible embodied elements for us to remember the lamb and the blood. In 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul says, I pass on to you what was passed on to me, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, he took the bread, and in each instance, uh, Paul gives us from that early church tradition a detail that's not mentioned in Mark, again, because Mark's so narrative and, and so concise. He says, uh, he records that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The opposite of the word remember, even in the English language, is not um, to forget. It's actually like most literally the word dismember. The opposite of, of, of remember is to dismember. Dismember is like tearing an animal apart, tearing something apart, to tear things into segmented pieces. The opposite of that is to draw those things back together. We're meant to have this like transforming power, like the truth in our lives, rehearsed in ritual and in community as a church where we sit there and like thumb through the elements of communion and sit down in a pew and drink the wine or the juice or the gluten-free because we live in California and the communion's also gluten-free. Thank you, whoever organized that. And like we're meant to thumb through all these, the elements and think and like remember. Typically we think of the word remember as like um, recall, but it's taking all those narrative lines of our life And just sitting there with it in hand thinking, what would my life look like if I perfectly believed that Jesus broke his body for me and sacrificed for me and that God is still just over a broken world and yet so loving as to give me shelter? What would it look like for me to have a transforming power to change my self-worth, to change the narrative that I live with against and replace it with something truer and better? that I'm not just living some political fight against the bad thinkers. I'm not just living a family narrative that says please the right kind of people because of the, the parenting thing, that, the dynamic that I'm caught in. I'm not just living an individualistic narrative where I'm just meant to go live out on my own in the wild west in San Francisco and nobody cares about me and there's no plan for my life and I'm just supposed to just somehow discover on the streets of San Francisco like a meaning that actually matters and I'm supposed to piece that together and do all that work just by myself and, and those narratives get reframed when we remember We go, there is a God who is powerful over the broken world we live in. And that God has covenanted and knows me. We're meant to remember and pull all those things together. That's why Jesus is saying, this is meant to be celebrated at a meal. Like at a meal where you take the elements into yourself and they become part of your like cellular DNA. That's the function of the of communion and I want to close with just like the things that I think we could remember even this morning I want you to see if anything his commitment to you expressed in the Lord's Supper look in verse 24 and 25 he says this is my blood of the covenant the covenant note that which is poured out for many he said to them truly I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it 
new in the kingdom of God. What is he saying there? He is, Jesus is creating an oath for us. Um, oaths in the Old Testament were, were something like this. We see it in the book of Acts as well, where someone will say, I will not eat or drink until I do this. Or I, in other words, I will do this thing that I promise or it'll kill me. He's creating an oath, a blood oath. And this is the way ancient people made those kinds of covenants. In Exodus 24, uh, the, the blood of the covenant that we're referencing in the passage here is where Moses kills an animal and sheds the blood on the people of God as they make an oath to obey God. And these oaths, interestingly enough, are sort of always from the inferior person, typically from the inferior person to the Lord, to the employer, to, the, to God. It's usually some, some subject making an oath of devotion to the person in charge, except for this really interesting early biblical thing in Genesis 15 where we get the theme of covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham, this guy Abraham. And he's just like a sheep herder in the ancient Near East, but God himself makes the covenant. And then he says, um, I'm gonna bless the world through you. And then of course, Abraham's justifiably, his response is like, how and? and why and how's this gonna work and will you really do it? And so God drives home the point of this covenant that he's devised with Abraham by saying, Abraham, take an animal, cut up animals, cut up the pieces, spread them apart into two sections. And immediately when God asked Abraham to do this, Abraham would have known from their culture that an oath is about to be made. So you cut up the pieces, you separate them on the ground. And Abraham's uh, interpretation of this, of course, to this point would be, okay, God is going to ask me to do what is customary, to walk through the pieces of this broken animal to convey basically that it is on, the blood is on me. All of this costliness is on me if I break the oath. Abraham's assumption is, I'm gonna make an oath to God and God will accept it or reject it. But instead in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in, in chapter 18, a torch appears to represent God's presence, and the torch begins to move back and forth through the pieces. God is making a blood oath to Abraham, the early covenant in the Bible, that it's on his blood, it's on his life to save, to bless, to honor these descendants of, of Abraham. He's gonna keep the covenant no matter what. And the point I was trying to make uh, or that, that I mentioned earlier that I wanna make to you is that see his commitment to you. He's creating a covenant with you. And of course, the early readers of the Old Testament would think, on what grounds and at what stake would God himself make a blood oath and say, may it be on my blood if I break this covenant? And of course, now we see it again fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And you might feel like very few people in this city are committed to you. You might feel like if you are, you're not the only person to come into church and say, is there a community? Is there a God? Is there even an idea that would make me feel like I'm together with people, that somebody's looking over me and caring for me? We're not meant to just be alone in this city, finding those, that meaning on our own, even in the midst of our betrayal of Jesus. The passage is bookended, verse 27 and 28. You all will fall away, and all of us do. But see his commitment to us. The clear point Jesus is making is that this salvation that is brought to you, in his death on the cross, it is not up to your religious performance or your pedigree 
that it's up to his covenant that he has promised to us, and we are recipients of that love and grace. So see his commitment to you. See his community for you. Um, Normally in the Passover, you would spend time with your family. Jesus is calling all of these people out of their family to be a part of this Passover, this special Passover meal. And in the same way, we are called out of our different families of origin to take the Passover together because it creates, God's grace creates a new community where people of all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, um, uh, you know, um, geographic backgrounds coming into our city especially, find unity commonly because of the grace that God has shown all of us in the midst of our sin. And we get to also see our future in him. So we see, we see his commitment to us, we see his community for us, and then we see his future for us because at the very end of the Bible, the thing that we get to have with Jesus is a meal. In Revelation 21, it's called the wedding feast of the lamb. Like God's relationship to us is a feast because he's a relational God who accepts us and is with us. And that's the future that we look to. When we hold the communion elements, we're remembering his commitment to us, his community for us. And we take this communion thing until the day where we can eat it in full with Jesus in his return and his resurrection. 